We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello everyone, you are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, from Tasmania all the way to you. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so head to edge.org.au for more information about them. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by my co-host, Mibu Fisher. And I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruita. And I also would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you are all listening today. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Now, today we're going to be combining two things that you may not necessarily think go together. We're going to be combining fire and water as we learn about bushfires and how they're connected to our oceans. Our guest this week is Jake Weiss from the University of Tasmania, based at IMAS, which is the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. So I'm going to hand over now to you, Mibu, as you can introduce Jake and our topic for the day. Thanks, Ollie. It's really great to be here with you today. Um, Our guest is Jake. He's a PhD student and a biological oceanographer. A biological oceanographer, from what I've understood is someone who studies how the physics, geology and chemistry of oceans interact with the organisms that live within them. So I think that's correct. But yeah, that's correct. That's, yeah. that's completely, that's what I'm doing. Awesome. Um, well, welcome to the show, Jake. <laughs> thanks for having me. It's really great to have you here today. You're an oceanographer, but you have a background in geology. Can yes. you explain to us how geology and oceanography are linked? Geology and oceanography are linked in mainly what I what I'm doing biological oceanography um, that relies on on particles from from land because biology in the ocean, which is um, at the base of the food web, what I'm um, investigating tiny ocean plants, algae they call um, phytoplankton can only be seen under a microscope because they're unicellular and they. As plants on land, they require nutrients to grow. Um, And those nutrients come either from within the water column through ocean currents, or they have to be supplied from land. Um, And that's that's where the geology comes in, because nutrients are in in minerals and in rocks. And whenever those nutrients come into the water, they supply nutrients for life in the ocean. I think that's really interesting. It's not something I think about all the time. But what motivated you to, you know, pursue a career in that field? That's a good question. So I um, I started studying geology. It wasn't my lifelong dream to become a geologist or an earth scientist. I, I finished school and then we got this this massive book um, with every every program you could possibly study your undergrads in in Germany. And I was just going through it. And I, I liked geography in school. I saw this geology program and it's at only study this if you're if you're keen to go outdoors and if you like hiking because you do field trips a lot and you go outdoors. And I felt like, yeah, that's kind of what I want. So this is how I got into geology. And through the study, which I, I liked it a lot, um, just learning about the, the geological history of, of our planet, I did realize that a lot of the um, the opportunities that come afterwards lead into mining, which which is great, which is a, 
an interesting field to study in, but it wasn't where I wanted to end up. So I um, went to Norway and studied there um, marine and, uh, and Arctic geology. So this is kind of where I started exploring the, the marine side of earth sciences. And from there on, I, um, I went into marine sciences and studied that as a, as a master's program in, in the Netherlands, in Utrecht. So it was, it was really just a, a bit of a, a random path that gradually led me where I'm right now. So you were studying up in the Northern Hemisphere, but what was the motivation for coming down south? So I, I studied in the Northern Hemisphere Arctic geology, um, also went to Svalbard, um, to the high Arctic, and then wrote a master thesis at a German um, marine and, and Polar Research Institute, the Alfred Wegener Institute. And there I actually studied the, the ocean currents of the Antarctic Circum Polar Current based on, on um, sediment and grain sizes um, of those sediments. And that is how I got into, into Antarctic and Southern Ocean research, even though I was studying in Germany quite far away from the, from the Southern Ocean. That's great, the way that you managed to end up doing this massive migration all the way down here within one field. So what is your current topic looking at? My current topic is looking at phytoplankton in the ocean, which I explained is they are unicellular algae that inhabit the ocean in, in, in large communities. And in the Southern Ocean, those phytoplankton, they, they lack a certain nutrient, which is iron. And I'm looking at how is iron being supplied to the Southern Ocean and how does iron, once it is supplied, trigger um, phytoplankton growth and the mains or a an important source of iron supply comes from land either um, in in the form of desert dust particles being emitted from deserts or as we now recently um, discovered bushfire aerosols do emit large quantities of ash clouds which contain iron and manage to fertilize the ocean in that way. What are bushfire aerosols? Bushfire aerosols, they are mainly ash. Um, it's mainly black carbon. And yeah, it's, it's very small and very lightweight particles that when trees and, and bushland, when it burns down, they get emitted. And also bushfires, they create winds that, or large-scale bushfires create winds that emit those aerosols even further up into the into the atmosphere from where they can be carried over large distances and then reach the Southern Ocean, which is so far away from continents. So it's it's mainly ash. That's fascinating. You wouldn't really think about, well, in my head, I always think the land does the land, the ocean does the ocean. The fact that they're connected is pretty awesome. Stay with us, listeners, as we go on to talk about some recent research Jake has done on phytoplankton blooms during the 2019 and 2020 Australian bushfires. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about bushfires and the ocean. My name is Mibu Fisher and I'm joined by Ollie Dove along with our guest Jake Weiss from the University of Tasmania. So Jake, um, before our break, you were talking about aerosols and explaining what they were. Are you able to tell us what aerosols are important to ocean productivity? The, the two types of aerosols that we consider fertilisers for the ocean are mineral particles from coming from from deserts from dust um so those are pretty much just ground up rock and uh, those are the the one type of particle and then the other type are ash particles from from bushfires that 
that contain that also contain iron, which which in the Southern Ocean is required as a as a fertilizer to trigger phytoplankton growth. I think you touched on it just earlier. I'm like, why is iron important to the oceans, and and why does the Southern Ocean kind of you know identify as being deficit in iron? Not everywhere in the ocean is is iron such an important nutrient that needs to be provided by aerosols that is really just oceanic regions that are far away from land because iron is it is concentrated in the earth's crust so rocks and minerals they they do tend to contain to contain a lot of iron and around coasts there is no iron limitation because those nutrients they are being washed washed out from from coasts and from rivers and phytoplankton in those regions they have all the iron they need but the southern ocean is so far away from any continent and since antarctica is covered by ice antarctica doesn't really provide any any iron so the southern ocean being a remote a very remote um, ocean does not have a lot of iron. So was this something that has been understood for a long time or we've only recently realised that the ocean needs iron? This has actually been known for quite a while. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, the so-called iron hypothesis came about and that was postulated by John Martin and he figured out that the Southern Ocean is deficient in iron and due to that, there is, there's barely any phytoplankton growth and because phytoplankton are plants, they are algae, they photosynthesize like plants on land do, and they take up carbon dioxide. And also the Southern Ocean, being a polar ocean, is very cold and it can dissolve a lot of carbon dioxide. And the lack of phytoplankton means that a lot of that dissolved carbon dioxide actually gets back into the atmosphere. The Southern Ocean has quite a lot of potential to, to sequester, to, to get rid of carbon dioxide, but the lack of phytoplankton means that is not the case. So what John Martin said when he came up with this hypothesis was, give me half a tanker of iron and I will give you an ice age. Meaning during ice ages, they found out there was a lot more dust because ice ages were drier and dust from deserts had a bigger fertilizing impact on the Southern Ocean, which meant more phytoplankton growth, which meant more carbon dioxide uptake. Part of what was taken up was, was deposited on the ocean surface meaning during ice ages we had less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, partly because of more dust from deserts. So this whole connection between particles from, from land that fertilize the ocean actually on, on large timescales has a pretty massive impact on, on the climate. And understanding that on a smaller scale and on smaller timescales is quite important. And this sort of leads us on to the work that you've involved in really recently so listeners there's a uh, scientific journal called nature which is very prestigious it's sort of for a phd student to be published in nature it's pretty high up there in on the impressive ranks and recently you were involved in a paper looking at phytoplankton blooms triggered in the southern ocean could you tell us a bit about the work that went into that? In 2019-2020, we had um, pretty devastating bushfires in, in Australia. And following those bushfires, two of my colleagues that, that led the collaboration that led to, the, to this paper. So what, what was known before is that bushfire particles, they do contain nutrients. We, this is not something we only just found out but we have never been able to, to see that effect in the ocean. And when those bushfires happened, Joanne Lort and Wai Tang, the two lead authors on that paper, they started wondering 
well, we have a lot of ash clouds being emitted into, into the atmosphere that we might be able to see an impact in the ocean. And what we did in this paper is we, we use satellite images and ocean floats. Those are um, basically robots floating around the ocean and taking measurements in the water. We use satellite data to look at the ocean color. And since phytoplankton, are, they, they produce a, a pigment called chlorophyll, like plants. That's why leaves are green. And when phytoplankton start growing, they will make the ocean greener. This is something we, we can't always see with the naked eye, but satellites are able to see it. Um, they measure wavelengths, light at different wavelengths. And by that we saw, once the bushfire aerosols were deposited in the ocean, the ocean turned greener, and from this we could infer a concentration of chlorophyll in the ocean, which told us there was a lot more phytoplankton growth by the time the aerosols um, were deposited on the ocean. And we also used those, those floats in the ocean that measure similar parameters and found a similar peak in chlorophyll during the same time that the satellite saw it. And based on that, we could, we could say that the bushfire aerosols had a fertilizing effect on the ocean. And what does that fertilizing effect have on the ecosystem? Because surely that's going to then have impacts further on. Yes, that that is a that's an interesting question that that I'm being asked a lot. This was outside the scope of our research. We we were not able to to see how how this mass how this phytoplankton bloom impacted other trophic levels, because for that you you would need to take samples to be actually in the ocean, in the fertilized patch. And that was just not the case. But from what, from what we understand, phytoplankton, they are the base of the food web. So if we get increased phytoplankton growth, it is likely that, that, anything, um, that marine life further up the food chain, they will get more nutrition. But on the other hand, um, big phytoplankton growth like this they take up um, other nutrients. They take up macronutrients like phosphate and nitrate. And those, they would be available somewhere downstream normally during normal times. So it is, it's a very multifaceted um, response um, that, that we haven't understood in nearly as much as we could. But yeah, that's something to look into. Incredibly fascinating stuff and gives lots of, there's a huge amount of scope for where the work could be going looking forward in time. So stick with us as we continue to delve further and further into Jake's work. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are talking about the Southern Ocean and the impacts of bushfires on ocean ecosystems. My name is Mibu Fisher, and I'm joined by Ollie Dove, along with our guest, Jake Weiss, from the University of Tasmania. So, Jake, you were just talking about phytoplankton and how it's important for ocean productivity, and also how bushfires impact that. Now, switching to climate change and <laughs> the the predictions around um, extreme events and bushfires, you know, th- that the idea of that will be that they'll increase in frequency. How will that impact on you know, the ocean's productivity, p- specifically around phytoplankton? That's a good question. And that is, um, even though it might seem counterintuitive, um, it has not been clear until maybe until recently, until the IPCC report got released, that bushfires and their risk are 
of happening more often is actually increasing with climate change. So this was something that needed to be needed to be proven. And um, so far, so far, we we understand that bushfires might become more frequent, will will become more frequent, and the large scale bushfires like the ones we we experienced in 2019 2020 they they will become more frequent with more extreme droughts because yeah um drought seasons they they are one uh one trigger of of um of big bushfires like the ones we had in 2019 2020 so with those being more frequent we would expect more aerosols being emitted um, that could then potentially fertilize the ocean more frequently than it used to be the case. How that is going to to impact um, climate change is very uncertain. That is something so far we, we cannot predict, we cannot say. And, um, and also it's the impact on climate from... Um, the impact aerosols being emitted from deserts or from bushfires on climate acts on on massive timescales that that acts on timescales thousands and ten thousands of years, which is why this iron hypothesis, the quote from John Martin saying, um, "Give me half a tanker of iron and I give you an ice age," that that um, that means um, yeah that 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 works on on um, timescales of of glacial of um, ice ages, whereas um, having more bushfires in the future will not likely um, solve climate change. That's kind of where my mind first went when you started explaining that. It was like, oh, but you were talking about, you know, give you a ton of iron and you can get an ice age. It's like, will that happen? We don't know, yeah. basically, yeah. That is, um, we if we dumped a lot of iron into the ocean right now, we would probably create a lot more problems than we would solve. We would certainly not solve climate change, but we would, like I said before, um, take up a lot more macronutrients, which um, ecosystems downstream they would lack. So we we would interfere with a a very fragile system that we don't understand at all, um, and we would likely likely create problems that we would not be able to solve. <laughs> yeah, hypothetically speaking, because this is sort of a huge um, system, sort of the Southern Ocean. It's not just a pond it's just this like incredibly large ecosystem if bushfires continue to happen more frequently and then they're affecting the levels of productivity in the oceans is there any way any possible way to deal with that or to prevent it or is it just a it's going to happen and we should know about it to then be aware of it that's a that's a good question and uh I, I'm not an expert on on um, bushfire prevention. So, um, from what I can tell, bushfires they have always been um, present in Australia. They've always been happening, um, and their intensity and their frequency increases, um, increasing with climate change and, and more bigger and more extended and more longer droughts. Um, that is something we would have to address climate change to address that. Bushfire prevention, yeah, it's it's really something I, I don't know much about. Sort of looking at it internationally now, the Southern Ocean is obviously not just Australia that's connected to the Southern Ocean. So do you know much about what's happening internationally and are sort of other countries looking at their dust deposits into the oceans or is it 
given that Australia is such a dry country, are we more involved in that area? Australia is certainly one of the the most important countries to look at because the the Australian deserts they are massive. They they supply um, pretty much the entire South Pacific and Pacific Southern Ocean with um, fertilizing dust and as we now know bushfire aerosols. Um, but the deserts in um, Namibia they they emit a lot of dust that have also fertilizing effects on the Southern Ocean. And also in, um, in Pat- the Patagonian deserts, they they have um, they emit dust as well. But Australia in the southern hemisphere is certainly the most important country, or the, the most important dust emission source that we consider for fertilization studies, natural fertilization studies in the Southern Ocean. There are different regions um, in the global oceans that are limited in iron. The um, tropical Pacific um, and the the, equ- the equatorial Pacific, um, and also the the North Pacific, which um, at the moment is quite interesting because um, there are very big bushfires in um, Siberia that um, uh, similar to the to the bushfires in 2019 2020 they emit a lot of ash clouds, and they they do travel over that part of the ocean and looking at the impact of those aerosols on this part of the ocean would be interesting. Um, also, in 2020, in um, were big bushfires in California. That, um, yeah, th- those aerosols they're mostly blown over the over the continent to the east, but um, sometimes they they get blown over the North Pacific. And um, looking at their impact there. Um, would be interesting as well. So also um, comparing the impact of bushfire aerosols in different oceanic regions that share the same deficiency in iron, but are just inherently different regions because they they, they are located in different areas of the global ocean, would be an interesting thing to look at and to compare how different phytoplankton communities would react differently. I have a bit of a random question. <laughs> I think it's random. Going away from bushfires, but still looking at aerosols, like emitted from volcanoes. Like, what's the difference in like the makeup of those aerosols, and do they have a different impact on phytoplankton than bushfires? That's a great question. Um, volcanoes have been found to have the same fertilizing effect that bushfire ash has. There was a paper in 2019 looking at um, large-scale volcanic eruptions in Alaska that, um, because they are located right next to this North Pacific Iron Limited region, um, and those ash clouds were deposited in the ocean and they triggered pretty much the same response that we saw now two years ago in the Southern Ocean. So ash um, from volcanoes um, contains elevated concentrations of iron as well. And when they reach an iron-limited region, they have the same impact that bushfires also. But understanding the difference in, or investigating the difference in response could give us an idea about um, how, how the composition is different. Because something I didn't mention yet is um, the the potential for aerosols to fertilize a an iron limited region lies in how much soluble iron is in those aerosols. If 
if um, if a particle has a lot of iron but nothing of this goes into solution, phytoplankton will not be able to to use it and will not be able to to grow, um, which makes bushfire aerosols such an interesting um, object to study because iron in bushfire aerosols, as we um, as we're currently finding out, has a lot more soluble iron than dust um, than dust particles. So even a smaller amount of ash um, could have a more fertilizing impact than, than dust because of that solubility factor. Thanks, Jake. That's so fascinating. And who would have thought that something like dust was such a magical and important component of our world? So thank you, everyone, for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and really hope that you enjoyed the show. If you did love it, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to do a warm thank you to my co-host Mibby Fisher as well as our expert guest Jake Weiss. Thank you and see you next time. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information. Can you explain how a bush regenerates after a fire? Yeah, so it, it depends on the species. But if we think about the plants, then a lot of the, the plants, particularly the big trees with thick bark, they might actually survive the fire. So the bark can protect the trees. The leaves might all be burnt off, but then um, there are dormant buds either under the bark or down in the roots that will reshoot after the fire. And so some of the, some of the bigger trees and some of the shrubs might actually be able to survive, but others are going to be killed. And then for the ones that might be killed, there are different processes that will enable... Um, a new cohort of plants to sort of come up um, and regenerate following the fire. So this sounds really interesting, but I wonder if you could maybe comment on the role that pathologists have played and how the pathology landscape has changed during COVID-19. Where pathology has been vital has been in the uh, collection of samples from patients. So that has required uh, a lot of what's called nasopharyngeal specimens being collected. So that's uh, swabs into the back of the throat and then down both noses, right down to the back of the uh, back of the nose, and that it requires because every time those samples are taken, it needs to be taken with care and with the appropriate. Uh, we all, all become familiar with the term PPE, personal protective uh, equipment, and so every sample requires full PPE and protection for the collector and the, for the, the patient and the patient being collected from. So that's at the beginning of the process.